0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rogers Smith, who is author of That Is Not Who We Are, Exclamation Point, Populism and Peoplehood. This book is published just recently by Yale University Press, um, and it comes out of um, some lectures that Rogers gave over the course of, I believe, a year um, at Yale, but I'll let him explain that. I'd like to welcome Roger Smith to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project in the shape that it's taken.
2: Hi, Rogers. Hi, Lily. Uh, It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I uh, am a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, Um, uh, but I did this project as a series of lectures in the fall of 2018 at Yale. They have something called the Castle Lecture Series, uh, where they uh, invite people uh, to uh, present thoughts that eventually get published by the Yale Press. and In the fall of 2018, I was uh, tremendously concerned by the uh, evidence from around the world that we were seeing the rise of a variety of authoritarian leaders and regimes uh, that called themselves populist and sometimes had broad popular support, uh, but that were uh, adopting uh, positions uh, Against immigration, against domestic uh, racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, and against a lot of uh, democratic freedoms um, that I found deeply disturbing. And um, in all too many respects, uh, Donald Trump's administration was a counterpart to these um, authoritarian nationalist movements. So um, I decided I would devote these lectures to uh, considering the character and appeal of these new forms of uh, populism, as they're commonly called, and uh, considering um, how they might be appropriately countered uh, through political movements that would be more egalitarian and inclusive uh, than uh, these new populisms tended to be.
1: And, and in the book, and I assume in the lectures also, but certainly in the book, you go through a variety of different countries. So we're not just talking about, as you note, know, you, you are sort of surveying the evidence around the globe as well as in the United States. Um, and so you look at um, a, a number of different countries that you've classified in a variety of ways um, that are seeing some of this. As well as possibly places where there is um, more more hope um, or more sort of countermeasures. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the places where you started to look at these examples? I mean, obviously, we have been looking at places like Viktor Orbán's Hungary um, and a number of other sort of Central and Eastern European countries. Um, but also what you saw in other places as well.
2: I was very conscious that uh, the rise of uh, authoritarian nationalisms uh, was a global phenomenon. And uh, like most other analysts, I saw that rise as a response to global conditions, uh, the rise of many forms of economic globalization uh, that uh, gave um, enhanced power uh, to uh, international um, economic institutions and governing institutions of various sorts uh, that adopted policies that... uh, Substantial sections of the population within many nations felt were hostile to them. Uh, and also uh, in many nations, there are more culturally traditionalist communities uh, that feel deeply threatened both by um, immigrant groups that are ethnoculturally dissimilar and by the uh, spread of a kind of uh, cosmopolitan um perspective adopted by many global elites uh, that they think are dismissive of their traditional values. Uh, So there are some common economic and cultural factors uh, contributing to the rise of these authoritarian nationalist movements claiming to speak in the name of the people uh, in many lands. And I uh, chose examples uh, to indicate that this was um, uh, a wide-ranging Phenomena that you can uh, certainly see in Europe, where uh, Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary has been perhaps uh, the most um, explicit and articulate champion of what he calls uh, illiberal democracy as well as um, ethnocultural homogeneity. Uh, But uh, this kind of outlook has um, counterparts uh, in. Mahindra Modi's call for India first and his privileging of a Hindu conception of um, national identity. It has a counterpart in Jair Bolsonaro's um, right-wing nationalism in Brazil. And I go through other examples uh, in the book uh, to make it clear that um, this is a global phenomenon, and it's important to understand the rise of Donald Trump uh, in light of these uh, broader global patterns as well, um, uh, many scholars of American politics—and I don't exclude myself—have um, uh, often gone wrong by um, uh, not recognizing the degree to which American developments are part of broader global trends. And
1: and so in this context, and you you highlight you know sort of these phenomena that are not exclusively. Western or European or European and American, um, but are, are sort of this question of cultural and economic feelings of assault. Um, and this gets to some of the basis for your analysis in terms of thinking about, as you say in the title of the book, peoplehood. And I know this has long been the center of a lot of the work that you have done that pulls together sort of various sides of political science and understanding of peoplehood. Can you talk a little bit about that, particularly in this context, and help us, help readers or or listeners think about what this term means and and how you sort of use it to think about um, politics.
2: Yes, I use the term peoplehood um, as a kind of umbrella term uh, for all kinds of human communities um, that operate to some extent as political societies and by a being political, I mean uh, that they uh, assert some uh, authority over uh, their members, claim their allegiance um, in contrast to the claims of other groups. Uh, I believe that any time you're saying um, you're obligated to us and not them, uh, you are um, being political. And uh, different Uh, sorts of human associations do that to uh, much different degrees. Uh, The extreme is the kind of political community or association that claims absolute sovereignty, absolute power over uh, their members. Uh, But many other kinds of um, human communities uh, claim authority in Uh, over some aspects of people's lives, perhaps um, uh, their spiritual beliefs, perhaps certain of their economic pursuits, and not other aspects of their lives. So um, I uh, use peoplehood as this umbrella term uh, for many different kinds of political communities. It's not actually a novel use. Uh, If you look through the history of uh, political thought, uh, you will find uh, writers referring to different people's Um, even before they begin uh, talking so extensively about different nations. But in uh, the modern era, uh, by which I mean particularly um, uh, the last century and a half, uh, we have come to talk about political communities primarily in terms of nation states uh, that often do claim absolute sovereign power. Um, and I do think that the nation state system is the most important form of political community, of political peoplehood in the world today. But it's far from the only kind. Um, it's it's not the only form. And it's also one uh, that has, um, uh, in world historical perspective, relatively recently uh, come to preeminence. Its preeminence is being challenged by many other Forms of political association and community uh, in the 21st century. And so I think that um, it's a mistake to think about um, uh, political community or political um, association societies primarily in terms of, or exclusively in terms of uh, nation states. So I think we need a broader term, and I've used peoples and peoplehood. as that broader term, it is part of the argument of this book uh, that um, the very multiplication of many kinds of political community and identity um, in the 21st century uh, is something uh, that many people experience as challenging, threatening, and that that's heightening the appeal to uh, Uh, return, if you will, to um, nationalism and the nation state as the preeminent form of political community by putting India first, by putting America first, um, as these recent leaders uh, say. Um, And uh, there's some false nostalgia there. Again, um, uh, the preeminence of the nation state is a, a relatively recent modern phenomenon uh, but precisely because it's being challenged on a number of fronts now, um, many are drawn to uh, reassert it strongly in the current moment.
1: And in terms of this, this question of this rise of, as you note, the multiplication of political identities, this is where the book sort of takes off um, and, and starts to discuss what we're talking about in terms of not only the identification with um, a kind of nationalism which is a connection to a particular country or nation state but at the sort of in in contrast or in conflict or in tension with political identity but identification with the nation state is another form of political identity and you sort of talk about these various kinds of political identity that are growing and that there are also many of them are constructed in such a way as to be defining for people socially. Um, and they may also be biological, uh, but that these are ways that people think of themselves and where is the conflict here?
2: Uh, Well, the, the conflict arises, um, uh, fundamentally, from uh, the fact that um, uh, many people uh, want to have for themselves a uh, secure sense of their um, core or true or most important political identity um, and uh, to um, make sure that that identity is uh, protected and indeed often um uh, made, uh, uh, dominant, uh, over other rival identities. Um, I have, um, an argument in the book that, um, uh, through much of human history, uh, most people inhabited, uh, uh, relatively isolated rural communities. And so even though, um, they, uh, in fact, always possessed multiple, um, identities. Uh, They they had a trade, they had a religion, um, uh, they had a role in their families and so forth. Um, uh, These were generally uh, part of um, a fairly um, uh, unchallenged structure of understanding of their uh, society and their place in their society. Um, In the modern world, not only are our associations and affiliations uh, multiplied in many cases. We're also uh, vividly aware because we mostly live in cities now because we're um, exposed to global technologies. Now uh, we're vividly aware of uh, the uh, many alternative identities um, uh, that some of which we possess, some of which challenge our identities um, and this uh, can create a, uh, Uh, a kind of uh, psychological anxiety or dissonance that um, I think um, proponents of nationalism appeal to, Uh, how do they appeal to it? Well, precisely because every human association um, is something that is uh, to some degree um, uh, crafted, created by human beings. Um, Political societies are not simply natural. I've long argued Uh, that the process of uh, crafting enduring political communities uh, involves um, leaders articulating narratives or stories of the uh, political community's identity, stories of peoplehood, as uh, I call them, uh, stories of peoplehood that can only work if they draw on and speak to uh, the pre existing senses of identity and values and interests that people have, uh, but stories that often, that always um, try to draw on those elements and craft a sense of the political community's identity that can spot, inspire allegiance to the community and inspire allegiance to these leaders of the community uh, by saying uh, that this community membership. Uh, will best protect and advance your economic interests. This community membership will protect uh, and advance your personal physical security um, and give you a share of political power, um, uh, uh, especially against enemies of uh, your community. Um, And I've argued uh, that these stories of peoplehood also have to have an element that I call a constitutive theme, a theme which says – There's something about what's valuable in who you are uh, that makes community, uh, makes membership in this community uh, something valuable and appropriate for you. And a wide range of uh, human identities can serve as such a constitutive theme. It could be uh, that you share a religion with others in the community. It could be uh, that you share a kind of ethnicity or ancestry. It could be uh, that you share a language or uh, a set of cultural traditions uh, or uh, political traditions, uh, but um, uh, the uh, argument is that uh, to uh, sustain support over time because there are always going to be economic t- bad times and times when your um, uh, nation isn't uh, doesn't seem so politically powerful it's very important to have a constitutive theme uh, that says that um, you belong to this community, you should be loyal to this community um, uh, uh, because God wants you to be, because um, uh, uh, being uh, someone who uh, carries on this cultural heritage is essential to who you are um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, because um, uh, your race makes this appropriate. And uh, these kinds of themes making you and your community seem uh, valuable and good, um, if you believe the story, um, are very politically potent. Uh, today, uh, we're having leaders tell uh, nationalist uh, stories. Um, uh, about uh, the greatness of indian civilization uh, or how america was great and we can make it great again uh, that um, involve these kinds of um, uh, constitutive themes and can help give people a sense of secure a secure anchor amidst uh the um uh, Swirling seas of different identities that they're uh, experiencing today,
1: and and I wanted to ask you uh, a bit about this sort of con- conception of these narratives um, and the stories of peoplehood, as you as you call them, um, and the way that they they sort of do loop citizens in political associations together, um, and also may you know drive them apart from one another. Um, and, and a lot of what is going on in your discussion in this book is to some degree, these competing narratives. Um, can you talk about kind of the role of narrative in our understanding of sort of political associations and politics? I'm about to start teaching the Republic. And of course we have those, those famous myths that Socrates talks about as necessary. Um, for the the society to hang together. Um, So this is not necessarily something new, but what you're talking about are sort of competing narratives.
2: Well, I certainly don't think it's at all new. I think that um, every political community through human history has had narratives of um, community identity that have sought to make that um, membership uh, attractive, uh, in the ways that I describe. Um, and I do think, uh, that, um, uh, Socrates in the Republic gives examples of this when, um, uh, he, uh, describes, uh, myths, uh, that, um, uh, indicate that you have inborn qualities, uh, that mean that you are suited to play a certain role in the city and you'll be fulfilled if you play a certain role, um, in the city. Uh, that kind of narrative and also, um, uh, origin and my, origin myths, you know, um, um, uh, the gods throw seeds on the ground and you grow, you spring up as, um, um, citizens of, a community. Uh, these are ubiquitous in one way or another through, uh, human, uh, history. Um, and I believe, uh, that is because, uh, while, um, Human beings as biological creatures have uh, certain uh, physical needs uh, that do help um, uh, define what you might want to call their objective or real interests, as some um, would have it. Um, uh, they are their objective interests if they um, uh, wish to survive, uh, and most people do. Nonetheless, um the ways in which we can uh, meet our bio- biological needs, uh, the ways in which we can meet our psychological needs, um, vary tremendously. Uh, and if people are to decide um, how they uh, should meet their needs, how they should live, um, they do so by providing themselves uh, some kind of account of the, um, who they are and, uh, what their aspirations are or should be, um, and what kinds of community are appropriate for filling, uh, those needs and aspirations. Uh, so I think that narratives of different, uh, kinds are, um, central features in, um, uh, giving meaning to human experience, but not just giving meaning to human experience, uh, giving, uh, particular substance uh, to the way uh, that we'll try and meet our biological and psychological uh, needs. Um, uh, We are uh, social creatures um, who fulfill our needs uh, within societies, within communities, uh, and that means that um, uh, the narratives that help sustain particular communities are uh, especially important, the stories of peoplehood. But because um, uh, people have different um, aspirations because people's pursuit of their own physical needs can lead them into conflict, it isn't surprising uh, that um, uh, rival uh, stories of peoplehood, rival conflicting uh, accounts of uh, uh, what the community should be uh, arise. Um, Some of these can be... um, Uh, sufficiently radical challenges that they suggest um, uh, purging some people from the community or seceding from the community and forming a a different one. Some of these accounts can suggest that um, uh, the needs and aspirations of the community can best be met uh, by conquering other peoples and communities. Um, uh, So uh, stories of peoplehood uh, are both bound up with building societies through which people can fulfill um, their needs and aspirations. They define uh, the ways to fulfill those needs and aspirations, uh, but they are also um, always uh, stories that can bring um, uh, some groups of people into conflict with other groups of people uh, within and beyond the boundaries of their current communities.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off,
1: and and you go through some different communities in particular that you're also situating in terms of sort of a timeline construction about how they are des- designing some of these um, understandings of peoplehood, and you talk about post communist countries, post imperial countries and dissident communities. Can you talk a little bit about the particular countries that you're looking at um, and how they sort of are examples of some of these tensions around populism and these narratives of peoplehood?
2: Yes, I uh, sought to identify uh, examples uh, in which you could see um, conflicts between, uh, the kinds of, um, uh, more authoritarian populist movements, um, invoking traditionalist senses of political identity that I was, um, concerned with and other views of, uh, political identity or peoplehood. I was looking, uh, for, um, uh, places where there were these kinds of conflicts, but again, there's lots and lots of those examples in the world today. They weren't hard to find, <laughs> of course. Um, uh, so then the question was, uh, well, I need a, um, a small set of examples, and I decided to uh, choose ones uh, that represented uh, the um, uh, three great waves of the building of nation states um, and therefore ultimately the modern nation state system. Uh, And the uh, first uh, nation states uh, emerged in Europe um, with um, uh, countries like um, uh, Great Britain and France. Um, And uh, so um, I uh, chose um, uh, Northern Ireland as a product of the... um, uh, uh, first wave of nation building, that first wave of nation building, um, involved, uh, nation states that, um, created empires. Northern Ireland is after all an imperial, uh, uh possession. Uh, and so I also wanted, um, uh, an example up from, uh, the, uh, first, um, uh, imperial colony to break away and become a new nation. Uh, and that was the United States. So um, I also use the United States as an example. Um, in, and um, so beyond that first wave of uh, nation state building and imperial nation state building, um, uh, which uh, began uh, really in a big way in the 18th century and uh Uh, created a world um, structured by um, nation states with empires that prevailed up into World War II. Um, Then uh, uh, after World War II, we had the ending of the European empires and the Japanese empire, and we had um, uh, a wave of new nation states uh, uh, being built. Um, And uh, so uh, I chose... um, uh, an example from uh, that uh, period of uh, or a couple of examples from that period of um, new nation building, uh, including um, India, the former uh, British colony and the United Arab Emirates, uh, who were never a former British colony, but were um, uh, essentially a collection of tribes effectively subjected to British rule uh, prior to uh, becoming a um, an independent nation. Um, and then the uh, the Soviet Union represented um, uh, a great modern empire that actually expanded after World War II, um, uh, but came to an end uh, in 1989. And so uh, I looked at uh, 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 the Czech Republic um, uh, and uh, the Slovak nation, uh, as examples of the nations that um, emerged uh, after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so I chose examples from those three waves of nation-state building, um, but I also uh, looked for the conflicts within them uh, befo- between uh, more uh, uh, traditionalist um, uh, forms of political community that were um, hostile uh, to um, many of the changes going on in the world, uh, different forms of globalization uh, and so forth, uh, and also um, the forces within those political communities uh, that uh, sought to resist uh, the harsher exclusionary and repressive impulses that um, uh, many Champions of more traditionalist forms of peoplehood uh, were advocating,
1: and and you also in in having these or presenting these examples, you are sort of talking about this these these tensions as as we've noted, between the the people who are potentially more connected to a nostalgic understanding of national peoplehood. Um, and those pushing against some of that. Can you talk about what you saw in one or two of these examples?
2: Well, first, I want to emphasize, consistent with what I was stressing earlier, that the um, appeal to an older sense of peoplehood is not necessarily always nationalistic. Um, I discuss, uh, using um, Kathy Kramer's Um, excellent book, The Politics of Resentment, uh, how uh, within the state of Wisconsin, uh, there's an older rural population that um, sees themselves with some justice um, as uh, threatened both economically and culturally uh, by um, broader changes in the world that include uh, the rise of um, uh, political and intellectual Uh, and economic elites within Wisconsin uh, that they see as not understanding their rural ways of life, not appreciative of the virtues of that way of life, and as adopting uh, policies uh, that are threatening uh, that uh, rural way of life, Uh, policies they resent, hence the politics of resentment. Um, And these people became uh, supporters of Scott Walker for governor, prior to becoming supporters in many cases of Donald Trump uh, uh, for president, uh, because uh, they saw these people as um, uh, these candidates as opponents of the um, uh, snobbish, self-serving elites um, uh, in at the University of Wisconsin and in the capital in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, who were uh, adopting. Um, a variety of state policies uh, governing education and um, uh, resource development, um, uh, taxation, and so forth, um, that really served the interests of these uh, urban populations much more uh, than rural populations. Um, and they also saw these uh, urban elites as looking down on them. Um, and uh, uh, that led them uh, to be drawn to someone who championed them as the true and best people, uh, of Wisconsin. Um, and, um, certainly Trump would count them as amongst the, um, uh, true and best people he's, um, uh, championing in the United States. Uh, so, uh, that's an example of an appeal to a traditionalist sense of peoplehood, um, that, uh, is compatible with a certain sense of American national identity and favors certain senses of American national identity over others. Uh, But it is uh, also, um, and most immediately, a kind of sense of um, uh, rural Wisconsin peoplehood uh, that is um, uh, felt to be under attack and um, uh, in need of defense at both the uh, state um, and national uh, levels. now, uh, the rural Wisconsin uh, folks feel themselves um, uh, an aggrieved minority population. Um, in India, uh, uh, Modi and the, uh, uh, his party, the BJP, um, are uh, championing the um, uh, interests of the uh, supermajority Hindu population, or uh, so they claim. Um, But that's uh, in part because uh, they believe that um, the support uh, for um, uh, the uh, traditional uh, uh, non-Hindu groups and lower caste groups that make up a substantial part of the population of India, particularly uh, the Muslims, but others uh, uh, as well, Uh, that those groups helped write protections for themselves into the India constitution as amended, um, and that um, these uh, policies uh, have, uh, along with forces of economic globalization, uh, have combined to mean that um, uh, India isn't achieving uh, the unity and the national economic policies that it needs. to realize its uh, full greatness um, in rivalry with uh, China, the United States, um, and the rest of the world. And so um, uh, Modi has been uh, championing a championing Hindu nationalism uh, that he says will restore the ancient greatness of India. Um, and uh, uh, it is associated uh, with... Uh, policies of fierce repression uh, toward uh, Muslims and other uh, minority groups uh, in India. There are people uh, who can appeal to uh, the traditions of uh, the different, but um, uh, still more inclusive traditions of um, uh, Gandhi with his um, view of um, India as an inclusive democratic nation, um, uh, or The um, uh, Dalit intellectual um, uh, B.R. Ambedkar and uh, his view of India as uh, one uh, that, as a nation that has a special obligation uh, to uh, assist the um, long discriminated against lower caste groups. There are other traditions that can be used to combat this um, uh, Hindu nationalism uh, in India, uh, but. Um, It's a conflict that is all the more challenging there uh, because um, Modi, uh, his populism, um, his Hindu religious nationalistic populism um, actually is appealing uh, to the majority of the people uh, in his nation. Um, Doesn't guarantee him success, but it does mean that um, uh, uh, his movement is even more powerful uh, than that of the uh, rural Wisconsin folks in his national context,
1: um, and and you also bring up Denmark and Israel, um, which don't usually get classified together very often, um, as as part of um, a different sort of context or a, a another example of um, sort of more inclusive stories. Can you talk about how Israel, which is is often seen as someplace full of conflict, um, and Denmark, not so much, <laughs> um, as part of this different connection?
2: Well, I do see um, uh, certain commonalities, despite um, obviously there being very great differences. Uh, You correctly described Denmark as a country that is not marked by severe internal conflicts uh, today, Uh, but um, it was uh, through the first part of the 20th century, um, uh, uh, late 19th and 20th century, uh, when um, it had a number of lines of division, none more important Uh, than the clashes between uh, farm and labor movements uh, about what kinds of economic policies and governing institutions Denmark uh, was to have um, as it um, uh, moved uh, from um, uh, an actual monarchy to a more formal constitutional uh, monarchy. Um, And uh, after World War II, um, uh, the Danes reduced their conflict substantially uh, by an agreement between uh, farm and labor parties uh, to support uh, the modern Danish social welfare state, uh, to agree on economic political institutions uh, through which um, uh, the Danes would um, pay a very high percentage of their income into taxes in uh, exchange for a very broad array of of uh, state services, health, health housing, education, uh, and more uh, going all through uh, their lives. Um, uh, the Danish social welfare state is this um, peace pact and it is held together by the uh, cultural symbols of um, Danish uh, people who had their devotion to the flag, um, uh, to the uh, Danish national church um, and other uh, elements of uh, Danish political culture. Um, They see this um, uh, unity as threatened uh, by immigrants uh, who come in um, and are culturally distinct and who also, they fear, will try and seek the benefits of the Danish social welfare state without having paid into it through their taxes uh, uh, throughout their lives uh, the way the Danes have. Um, And so the Danish People's Party, uh, which is not particularly right-wing on economic policies, it it supports the Danish uh, social welfare state, um, which is not particularly authoritarian, at least um, uh, so far. Um, uh, It is strongly anti-immigrant, and it does uh, champion um, uh, preserving Danish cultural homogeneity as a means of um, preserving the Danish social welfare state, uh, that ended very severe conflicts. Um, Israel's situation is one where, uh, of course, um, uh, there are uh, profound conflicts uh, uh, between um, uh, the Israelis who want Israel uh, to be a Jewish state um, and uh, the more than 20% of the population uh, that is not Jewish, that are um, <coughs> mostly Arabs uh, of one variety or another. And uh, it's a familiar point that the tension between, um, the tension in Israel's founding documents, which proclaim it to be both a Jewish and democratic state, are um, uh, definitive, constitutive, if you will, of um Uh, Israeli national identity. Um, uh, Can you be a Jewish state and still be a democratic state uh, uh, when more than a fifth of your population uh, are not Jews? Um, They have struggled with that um, throughout their existence. Um, And in uh, the uh, recent um, couple of decades, uh, uh, including um, in recent years, They've moved more and more strongly to asserting uh, Jewish national identity, um, uh, adopting policies uh, that um, make it more difficult uh, for um, uh, Arabs from outside Israel to marry Jewish Arabs and uh, to, to marry Israeli Arabs and to um, uh, come into um, Israel, uh, uh, increasing uh, the size of the non-Jewish uh, minority. Uh, in Israel. Um, and uh, of course, also seeking to um, uh, acquire lands that ex- uh, at the expense of uh, Arab settlers that expand uh, Jewish uh, settlement. Um, these uh, efforts within Israel are combated by many uh, Jews uh, inside and outside uh, Israel uh, who do want Israel to be in some sense a Jewish state, but also want it to be a genuinely democratic state, uh, with full and equal rights, uh, for its non-Jewish, um, uh, uh, citizens. Uh, but part of the population sees that as threatening to Israel's unity and survival, um, in just the same way that the Danish people's party see immigrants as threatening, um, Denmark's, uh, unity and, um, uh, ultimate survival. Uh, So um, yes, the cases are in important respects uh, different, uh, but you can see the same kinds of conflicts over um, uh, building and sustaining a sense of peoplehood in both places.
1: I, I wanted to ask you in context of some of these examples that you've just outlined, and as you sort of note throughout the book, these conflicting or, or tense um, narratives that you, you ask at the end of the book, why should people follow those who call them to join in a difficult journey, um, which may be a narrative or a sort of concept of peoplehood that is harder or not as potentially immediately satisfying, rather than leaders who promise to restore to them a glorious past. Why should people accommodate those they despise or those they see as threats to what they most value? Can you tell us a little bit about how you start to answer that question?
2: Yes. I think that um, uh, it's true really within the traditions that have shaped every modern society, Um, and it's also true in The awareness of traditions that everyone possesses today, which includes some knowledge of um, traditions uh, that um, uh, are not primarily from within our communities, but that um, uh, we learn about through uh, the enhanced knowledge we have of the whole world. Um, uh, Everyone uh, has been shaped by uh, moral traditions, uh, which uh, indicate that all human beings, um, have value and, uh, worth that, um, deserves to be, uh, respected. Um, everyone therefore, um, is, uh, partly influenced by, constituted by, uh, moral traditions, uh, that support more egalitarian and inclusive, uh, policies. Um, plus, Uh, We live in a world today where we are very aware uh, that um, we all face problems uh, that transcend national borders um, and probably can be met only uh, through the cooperative action of um, human beings, not just within but beyond their existing uh, communities. Uh, The challenges of uh, climate change are not ones uh, that any one nation can uh, resolve by itself. Uh, the challenges of um, the uh, global economy um, are ones that uh, uh, inevitably require uh, cooperative agreements amongst different countries if um, uh, they're, they can be confident of prospering uh, going forward. Um, the uh, challenges of immigration and human movements and refugees. These are things uh, that um, you can try to resolve uh, simply by um, uh, building walls and um, uh, closing uh, ports of entry. Uh, But uh, the reality is that um, uh, we're likely to continue to experience uh, those um, immigrant and refugee pressures uh, unless we have uh, some kinds of transnational cooperative arrangements um, that deal with them more constructively. So both at the level of our senses of at least some of our deepest moral commitments and our awareness of um, uh, claims as to what our moral commitments should be that we hear from many voices, and at the level of our uh, uh, material interests um, uh in life, in physical security, and prosperity. Uh, we have lots of reasons uh, for saying that um, uh, we actually uh, should uh, try to um, build communities that are uh, more inclusive and egalitarian internally and that work uh, harmoniously in cooperation uh, with other uh, political societies. Um, instead of in isolation or sharp opposition. uh, There are things to build on for those kinds of uh, policies uh, in every society, just as there are also um, uh, powerful senses of interest and identity and value that push against them uh, in every society. Um, I happen to believe Uh, that politics is really important, that politics really matters, that the outcomes of the conflicts that arise from these conflicting uh, senses of um, interest, identity, and value, um, the outcomes are not inevitable. uh, And we are engaged in um, uh, very intense struggles right now uh, as to uh, what kinds of Uh, policies, uh, uh, what kinds of senses of who we are uh, will prevail in uh, many lands, and uh, the fate of the world literally hangs in the balance. Um, uh, To some degree, that's always true. I think today it is um, more acutely true uh, than at many times um, in the past, and it is acutely true in uh, the United States in 2020.
1: Um, So on that happy note, Roger, what are you working on now to follow this up? Uh,
2: Well, I am. uh, I'm working on a couple of uh, different projects um, uh, uh, with uh, Desmond King of Oxford for a number of years. Um, I've written works on um, American racial politics, and we're arguing uh, that American racial politics is um, entering a new and in some ways more polarized and divided phase uh, right now in ways that are tied to this rise of, uh, more authoritarian nationalist, uh, forms of populist populism, more traditionalist conceptions of political identity. Um, uh, we have a sharp divide in this country, uh, between those, uh, who, um, feel, uh, that efforts to um, assist minorities and welcome immigrants have gone so far that um, uh, the traditional white population in the, this country and their ways of life are endangered um, uh, and need to be protected um, against uh, further egalitarian and inclusive changes. And um, uh, we have a substantial portion of the population um, uh, that has been um, uh energized by the uh, repeated evidence of um, police brutality uh, against especially young black men and people of color more generally uh, to believe uh, that the country must do much more and many countries must do much more uh, to end um, uh, systemic racism in many forms um, and uh, try to uh, achieve genuine um, inclusion Uh, for long discriminated against um, and still discriminated against minority populations. Um, This clash between um, uh, uh, what we call the white protectionists and uh, uh, the uh, racial reparationists is, um, uh, I think, um, even more intense uh, than the nation's racial divisions in recent years. And it has the potential uh, to... Uh, go either way in ways that um, uh, could uh, significantly transform um, America as a nation. Uh, so I'm paying a lot of attention to that. I have a, a longer term project building on my earlier work where I closely studied the development of American citizenship from the founding era through the progressive era. Uh, and I am at work um, on the uh, a study of the evolution of American citizenship from the progressive era uh, to the present day. And it's a work that I call um, Civic Horizons because amongst those developments is this mounting questioning of whether uh, the nation state is the appropriate uh, horizon for political community or whether we uh, should seek to move beyond it um, in the 21st century. I don't think it's... um, Uh, plausible to seek to move beyond uh, the nation state as the basic locus of citizenship uh, right now. Um, I think the challenge is still uh, to try to make uh, the forms of civic life we have within our uh, nations um, better, uh, more inclusive, egalitarian, and more fulfilling for more people uh, than in the past. Uh, But again, I think we're coming to the realization that we can only do so uh, if uh, we uh, pursue uh, forms of political peoplehood uh, uh, that um, uh, are not just open but eager to engage cooperatively with other political peoples, with other nations, um, in working together uh, to uh, confront the larger challenges. Um, That the world presents to us all.
1: Well, I hope you will come on the New Books podcast again and talk to me about one or two of those projects when they're out and published.
2: Well, I look forward to being in a position to do so. Uh, A lot of work to be done, uh, but I would love to do it.
1: I understand. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rogers Smith, who is author of That Is Not Who We Are, Populism and Peoplehood, published in 2020 by Yale University Press, and I assume available at the Yale University Press website.
2: Absolutely. And thank
1: you very much, Lily. It's my pleasure.